0: Let me first of all say that the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. I was sick, not dead, Uh, and uh, best I can determine, Linda had a bad case of bronchitis, and I think one night while I was sleeping, she kissed me. And uh, at that point, uh, we both uh, had it, but it is good to feel better. And as uh, Fernando Lamas used to say, it's better to look better than even to feel better. So I don't know how I look, but I do feel better. And uh, it is an honor for me to be able to speak and have this hour with you as we open the Word of God together. I remember, I think it was last Sunday, our dear pastor, he said that he had a dream that Saban went to Arkansas. Well, you know, th- because of that, I started having dreams. And uh, I had one last night. Sabin went to Navy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it may have been prophetic that you uh, chose your, your allegiance uh, to be uh, the Naval Academy. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I searched and searched in my mind for a way to introduce uh, the subject this morning and this this may not be the perfect illustration but it was it was just the best i could do it it involved an incident that glinda and i had that was a little bit embarrassing to us because of misidentification but it was on a saturday and i was outside uh, tearing up the grass and trying to do you know, do yard work and things and she comes outside and she says you had a phone call I said oh who was it she said I don't know and I said well what was the what was the message she said he wanted you to know that he's not there yet he'll he'll be there shortly And I said, that's what he said? She said, yeah. He said, not there yet. You'll be there shortly. I said, well, honey, what? You have no idea? She said, well, you know, I I think it might have been Dr. Talley. Well, he was my boss. He was uh, the chairman of pastoral theology at Southeastern, and he became the dean of the college, and eventually he became the president of Southeastern Bible College. And and, uh, a good friend, a dear friend, But at that time, he was my boss, and he didn't know a whole lot about me, and I didn't know really a whole lot about him. But I knew that I was under him. And she says, he's not there yet, but he'll be there shortly. Well, we both agreed that for a man of his magnitude to come to our home, it had to change. We had to have a transformation. The way we normally live is not the way we want him to think we live. You ever been in that situation? Are your closets big enough to hold all the stuff? But she said, finish up outside. So I finished cutting the grass, edging. Uh, The the grass had grown five inches over the sidewalks in the driveway. And now we have a nice wide driveway again. But I did all that, and I trimmed the bushes a little bit and got them looking pretty good, got it all cleaned up. And then she said, oh, you're not finished. I was going to go take a shower. She said, the carpets need to be vacuumed. And she says, I'm working on the dishes, and we got to got all this stuff on the table, get it off. It doesn't belong there. Put it where it belongs. Well, it belongs in the closet, so I put it in the closet. And uh, we frantically just did a transformation of our house. I mean, it really looked good. We should have sold it right, right, right then and there. And I took a shower. She cleaned up. We came downstairs, and we sat in the, the den watching some sports show or whatever. You know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. What what did he say? He said that he's not there yet He'll be there shortly. And we waited and waited. And we finally had a little light dinner. And he cleaned up all that mess real quick. Got it back the way it was. And finally it was bedtime and we went to bed. We didn't know what what had happened. And all of a sudden it's like Glenda gets a bolt of lightning. She says, I know who that was. I said, well, please tell me. She said, it was your doctor. He was giving you a, 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 a lab report of your blood. <clears throat> and I said, oh, okay, well, now, now we know. The one thing that came out of that, the one thing that I remember about that was that there was a man that I thought was coming to my home, and he was a man that I had the highest respect for. I just thought he was just one of the, the finest men that I would ever met, and I had the privilege of working for him or with him. He was a Vietnam vet. He had seen the, the, the ravages of, of death. He had men die in his arms. Uh, he went through an awful lot, and he was a good theologian, well-educated. And now he's at Southeastern, and I'm working under him. And when a man like that wants to come to my home, our house can't look the way it normally looks. And that's why we so frantically did all that we did. Now, you might say, well, that's hypocrisy. Well, maybe so, but uh, but we felt a lot better about it <laughs> regardless. And out of that, I, I saw an analogy. I, that That to me transferred over to another issue, and that is the fact that the, the Scriptures teach us that Jesus is coming back. Um, we're in the time of the year when we celebrate His coming the first time, and that's a great celebration, and I'm, I'm all a part of it. I, I have no problem uh, with the great food and uh, shorter working hours and, and all that stuff. I mean, I, that's, that's fine. But the the ultimate core understanding of Christmas is that the Son of God loved us so much that he was willing to voluntarily give up the use of his own divine attributes and he took on the form of a man. He became an eternal, deified person that added a human nature to it as the baby in Bethlehem. He became one of us so that he could die for us. And then he went back to the Father. But the Scriptures say that one day he's coming back. He's coming back for his church. That's, that's the next thing. But then eventually, after he takes us back to where he is and cleans us up, then he's coming to the earth as the king of kings and lord of lords to bring peace on earth and to usher in the millennial kingdom a thousand year reign of the son of God and if that's true uh, how does that relate to you and I Uh, there's a message he says I'm coming get ready So what are we going to do to get ourselves ready? I think there's another principle that's found in in God's Word. Um, And it's that God's purpose for His children. Now ask yourself, what is His purpose for us? Why did He redeem us? Why are we born again? Why do we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us? Why aren't we there right now? Why are we still here? It's because God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is to reproduce His Son in us. God wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He wants us to be like Him. Doesn't mean you've got to be a carpenter. But it means that in your spiritual life, in the real you that dwells inside this physical body, he wants you to conform to the way Jesus thought and to the way Jesus made decisions to always honor the Father and do what the Father wanted him to do or expected him to do. Uh, I I begin to see that in passages like John one eighteen. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. No one has seen God the Father. In John 4, he says, God is spirit. But he says, Jesus, who came as the God-man, one of the purposes of his life leading up to the cross, was to reveal the Father to men. He wanted to reveal. That word uh, explained is really a good word. Uh, It's the word exegesis. And in the study of Scripture, uh, when you study the Bible itself, when you look into it and look at the Greek in the New Testament and the Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, when you exegete it, you are bringing forth the truth that lies therein. And then another word it's not here but I'll just add it there's a good word that goes with that along with exegesis goes exposition. And that's what the preacher does or the teacher. After he or she determines what the truth of God's word is, then they try to apply it to the needs of the of their people. So exegesis is the foundation and the exposition is the icing and all that so that you finally have a cake. You serve the cake and it's done. Well, that text is saying that Jesus is the exegete. He exegetes God to us. As Dr. Edwin Bloom, one of my professors from way back, he said the Son is the exegete of the Father. And as a result of his work, the nature of the invisible Father is displayed in the Son. He says, John 1.18 means this. No one has ever seen God's essential nature. God may be seen in a theophany or an anthropomorphism, but his inner essence or his nature is disclosed only in Jesus. Jesus revealed the Father to men. He did it by what he said, and he did it by what he did. His words, his works. That was the way that Jesus revealed the Father during his earthly life, before he went to the cross. Now, I said that God's purpose for his children is to reproduce his Son in us to conform us to the image of Christ. That's where the problem is. We can't do that. We are fallen, flawed creatures of God. And the only way that that purpose can be accomplished in us is that somehow God has a way to put in us someone or something that is able to accomplish the very work that God desires in us. We can't do it. Knowing God comes only through Jesus, the Logos of God. And as one is confronted by Him and hears His words and sees His deeds, the Father works within him. Now, you've seen this before, so don't panic. Here's my old buddy Kermit. I love this this, this cartoon. He's sitting at the doctor's office, had some tests run. Have a seat, Kermit. What I'm about to tell you might come as a big shock. I would like to speak uh, at a big, big convention of so-called Christians, and I'd like to show them that and say, i got a big shock for you. All the stuff you're bragging about, it's not brag-worthy. It's not blimp-worthy, and it's not brag-worthy. The only thing that's brag-worthy is what the hand does in you. Every good thing you've ever done that God commends and approves of, you didn't do it. You see, God has put his spirit in us. And the spirit is not only an empowerment that the non-Christian doesn't have, but the spirit is an enablement. Through him, walk by the spirit, Paul says, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, in John fifteen, Jesus spoke about the vine and the branches, and he wanted his disciples to understand you must be connected to me i 'm the i 'm the vine, you are the branches, and the only reason that you have fruit on your you as a branch is because you're connected to me as the vine, and the life of the vine flows into the branch to produce the fruit paul and Jesus told his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what I would put under there. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or apart from the hand, you can do nothing. First opinion, one, one. That had to be a shock to Kermit. It may be an even bigger shock to many of us who don't realize that the Christian life is not what I do. The Christian life is what he does through me. I have to allow Him, I have to yield to His his power, to His purpose. But the work that is done through me to fulfill His purpose, to reproduce His Son, for us to be revealers of God to the world, we must have God in us. And He empowers us. Um, John 8.26 is another passage that speaks to this. Jesus says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. So it's not only his, uh, his, wor- his uh, works, but it's his words. Uh, the writer says, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They didn't get it yet that there was a special relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And the mission of the Son, in obedience to the Father, was to reveal the Father to the world, to men. John chapter 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. That's all we want. Jesus said, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Now, that's a very polite way of saying, what are you thinking of, son? When are you going to start connecting the dots? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, Jesus was a revealer. He revealed the Father. So how do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, not only the works, but the words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works. The night before Jesus, or the, well, Actually, the night, uh, or the, the night before the crucifixion, the night that Jesus would begin that final mission and drink the cup that had been determined for him, he had a special time of fellowship with the Father. We call it the Upper Room, uh, high, high priestly, high priestly prayer. This is the Lord's prayer, not uh, Matthew uh, six. He says, as he's talking to the Father, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So he says, I'm sending them, his disciples, and those who would follow. I'm sending them into the world the very same way that you sent me into the world. That begs the question, how did God send Jesus into the world? The Spirit of God was in Him. And everything Jesus was asked to do in obedience to the Father, He did it by the power and enablement of the Spirit of God. And you say, well, don't send me out there. I I, I don't have the ability to do that. He says, as thou didst send me, I also have sent them. We're being sent with the same equipment, the same equipped. We have the Spirit of God in us so that anything God wants us to do, it can be done. And at the bottom, it says that the world may believe that thou didst send me. You see, that reinforces the idea that God's purpose for us is to be revealers to the world of the Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem men. And disciples are now to continue the work of revealing the, uh, the Father by, His wo- by words and by works. We reveal the Father by the words we say. We talk about truth, but also by the things we do, our works. Our works should reflect obedience to what God wants the child of God to be about and to be doing and that is a revelation to the world. And sometimes I know you feel that, well, the world sure isn't listening and they're not looking, and you're wrong. They are looking, they are listening. They hear what we say, they see our lifestyle, they see the things that we do and don't do, they see how we are reflecting the character of God instead of the reflecting the character of this culture. And when we do that, we are doing the very thing that God has left us here on this earth to do. We are to be revealers by our words and by our works. I think that for this kind of a, uh, of a challenge as believers, uh, we, we need motivation. And God knew that. We need motivation that Christ works through the life of the believer to accomplish in our day what Jesus did when he was on this earth. His work of revealing came to an end. That's why in in this prayer he's saying, Lord, I realize that my work as revealing is coming to an end. Now I'm going to do the work of redeeming. And that would mean the cross. And he became the substitute for every one of us God put upon him who had no sin, sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. I know some people tell me that, that you know, that's a hard thing to understand. And, and I stay up at night sometimes trying to find a way to make it simpler. I don't, sometimes I don't know how to make it any simpler. But you like credit cards, don't you? Well, men, you, you give your wife a credit card and say, you know, I'm going to watch the ball game. Go, go have fun. And then about four hours later, she says, George, I need help. I tell you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, but I can't, I can't get all the packages up. What packages? Well, you told me to go shop, so I went and shopped. She's got all these boxes and packages and things. And I said, well, honey, what did you pay for that, for that with? She said, I used your card that you gave me. And the the lady at the store, she took the cord, scanned it, approved, there you go. He should, have, he should have said, lady, is that your card? Well, no, it's my Well, then you can't use it. Bring your husband. But when you let somebody have your card and they use it, maybe it's a daughter or a son. They go off to college and you say, well, you know, here's a card, use it if you have to. Ho, ho, ho. Exegete that statement, and you're not going to like what it means. And you get your bill, and you've, you've charged uh, $800, and there's about 25 different things. And you say, honey, h- how did this get on my account? Well, it was imputed to you when she used that card. The store said, we'll give you that merchandise, but we've got to charge somebody. Somebody's got to pay for it. Well, use this. And by swiping the card, they said, I paid for it. It was imputed to my account. Well, we all have sin imputed to our account because of Adam's sin. And that imputation of Adam's sin brings about a sin nature that produces your own personal sin. There's all kinds of sin. There's plenty to go around. Uh, don't ever believe that somebody could say, I have never sinned in my entire life. Well, you just did. You lied. <laughs> or to hold that beautiful little baby. And they are beautiful. They're, they're precious. You just got to hold it out sometimes if you don't want to mess up your coat or whatever. But they are beautiful, precious little cherubim. And then suddenly you realize... Lucifer was a cherub cherubim too but they are beautiful and innocent in terms of what they've done but they are under the guilt of Adam's sin and as they grow i think it ought to be a top priority that these children of ours that they hear the gospel in Sunday school and children's church and whatever Backyard Bible Clubs, Vacation Bible School, they need to hear it and hear it. And then you as parents need to be telling them about it and telling them about your own decision to come to Christ. And then they, they need to be seeing it. They need to see how mom and dad don't act the way the other neighbors do. They need to see that mom and dad, on Sunday, they're worshiping the Lord. They're not having a, getting ready to have an NFL pre-game uh, party or whatever. They need to see that the neighbors cuss and they throw their garbage on your lawn if, if their team loses and you beat them. And they see that mom and dad don't do that. Do you? <laughs> by your words and by your works, you are revealing to the world the Father and His purpose And his plan for redemption, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. So, I think that the motive to prompt the child of God uh, to produce such a conduct that reveals the character of God, that's the motivation that will bring about transformation. Someone issued a challenge once to read through the epistles and circle or mark every reference you find to the coming of Christ, whether it be what we call the rapture, or whether it be the second coming itself, where he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. That person said, when you find all those references, he says, if you look hard enough, you will see that there's always attached to that reference to the coming of Christ. There will also be an exhortation to righteousness, to holiness, to godly living. See, and that's the motive to transformation. The motive is to to prompt the child of God to produce such conduct that is a revelation of the character of God. That motivation is the coming of Christ. Now, let me show you a few passages. First one is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God. I love that, to quote our pastor. And it is not yet appeared that we shall be. We know that if He should appear, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. So John talks about the coming of Christ when we are joined together with Him. What a wonderful, glorious thing that's going to be. But then He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. What is the motivation to be all excited? What is the motivation to, to uh, transform your life? And to be the kind of person God wants you to be, the motivation is that one day you're going to see Him. And our hope is fixed on Him. Our hope is not fixed on our retirement plan. Uh, Our our hope is not fixed on what we can do in our own uh, um, power. Our hope is fixed on the fact that the divine enabler, the Spirit of God, can enable us to be a revealer. And we're looking forward to the day when we will connect all the dots and learn things that right now we don't know. There's some things we don't know, but we know we have a Savior, and we know He's alive, and we know that He's with the Father in Heaven, and we know that one day He's sending Him back to gather His church. Now, if that's true, if that's what your hope is fixed on, then you'll purify yourself just as He... Is pure. I think uh, John is making a distinction between positional righteousness and progressive righteousness or sanctification. We will work on making ourselves pure because we know that in the presence of God we are justified and declared righteous before Him. Um, so if I could define the Christian life, uh, I, I would say it this way. I don't. Nope, I didn't have it up there. But I, I'll read it to you. My definition of the Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in the child of God by the power and enablement of the Spirit of God. That's what the life of Christ is. It's not going to church. It's not becoming a leader of the church. And uh, it, it, it's not the things that... Non-Christians can do, by the way. We have dumbed down the Christian life to where now non-Christians can live it. Because we're saying the Christian life is go to church, give some money, be nice, help people out. At Christmas time, get charitable and stuff stockings and pack boxes. And, and, and I'm not belittling these things. We do these things because we think this is pleasing to God. It's a way of ministering to people. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Somebody once said, living in a garage doesn't make you a... a, 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 Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than living in a garage makes you a car. Now, there are cars in garages, but there will always be cars. They won't become Christians. All right. Well, here's here's the second passage. I'm just trying to show you that there's a link. Every time we talk about the coming of Christ, there's an emphasis, an exhortation about how we should be living our lives. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's a negative thing. And then positively, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word, uh, that phrase, looking for the blessed hope, that's a reference to Christ's coming. He's coming back one day. And Paul, uh, Paul tells Timothy that the motivation to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, the motivation for that is because we're looking for the blessed hope. And the more intently we look for it, the more we refine our lives in this life. That word looking, it's a interesting word. It's a circumstantial participle, and that, that really excites you. And by the way, somebody told me that... Uh, They hate that we got rid of those blue chairs because um, uh, they they were so uncomfortable you couldn't sleep. And they said, Now you got these new chairs, and they're so comfortable that we can't stay awake. So if I pound once in a while, it's just to, to make sure you're with me. But this participle could be interpreted in two different ways, perhaps others. It could be causal. It could say that uh, we are uh, denying ungodliness and we're uh, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age because we are looking for the blessed hope. That would be a causal way of using it. But then you could also have it in a temporal sense that we are uh, living righteously and godly in the present age while we are looking for the blessed hope. And the word itself for looking is a word that that means an intense gaze. I remember when Chris was just a small thing. He's he's come a long way, but when he was just a little boy, um, well he was a baby really. Um, Glenda was trying to get his milk ready for him, and I was holding him and he was crying, and and she was trying to she didn't know if she had everything she needed. And he's looking for her. He wants her. And so, you know, I got him here and and he's looking this way. So I turn. And then when I do that, he turns his head and his head could go all the way around. (laughs) Children can do that kind of stuff. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm supposed to grab this, then cough. But no matter how I tried to turn to keep him from looking that way, he was fixed. He knew that that's where the goodies are. And I want mama because she'll have nourishment and all that kind of stuff. Well, that, that's the, the, the sense. Paul's appeal uh, is that the Lord is coming. And that imminent hope was not to teach them eschatology. Some of you are saying, well, I don't even know what that is. Well, you, you don't, it's not important. But it was... the. It was designed to transform their daily conduct. That was the point of emphasizing. See, that was motivation for transformation. God wants us to be transformed in our daily living. Not like the world lives, but like His Son lives. He wants us to have a life that is uniquely righteous. We're not perfect, we make mistakes. But when we do, we acknowledge them. We turn from them. We repent from that. And we say, Lord, I, I want to be like you in my character. I want to be righteous and holy in the way I think, in the way I act. So that the world will look at me and say, wow, are you an alien? I mean, you're not one of us. Where'd you come from? And then you, they're, they're begging you to share your testimony. Say, so, well, I'll tell you where I came from. I was a sinner Living in the projects on uh, Conti Street, and uh, God showed me by His grace that I'm a sinner and I can't do anything to change that, but He could. And He sent His Son Jesus to die for me. And the sin that had been imputed to me was now being imputed to Christ, and He paid the penalty. And then when you believed and put your trust in Christ, God then takes his own righteousness, which is the only righteousness that is acceptable. He takes his own righteousness and he imputes it to you. So that if you were a set of books, you're uh, bankrupt. And somebody comes in and says, well, I'm going to give you enough money to balance it out. Now it's zero. Well, that, that'll keep you out of jail, but you, sh- you still can't get to heaven. You can't get to heaven being zero. I've, I've done nothing wrong. Well, but you're still under Adam's sin. So you're, you're guilty. God, uh, it's, it's a group thing. It's all or nothing. Either all of humanity is, is under the sin of Adam or nobody is. I forgot what I was trying to tell you. It's going to be a good story. <clears throat> but then... Uh, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. So even though you're still in a sinful body and, and struggling sometimes with trying to do the right thing and to be obedient to God, and we all struggle, Paul struggled, he talks about that in Romans chapter uh, 7. But even though we still have a sinful body and we're not you know, pure, uh, perfect yet, that's our desire, that's our goal. Every day we say, Lord, Uh, Work through me. Control me. Let my words reflect what you would say. Let my works reflect what you would want me to do. Let me be a revelation to men, generically, to all men. Um, And and so, I go to another one. James, chapter 5. Just have a couple more. James, chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So he's again talking about conduct. Be patient. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Is at hand. You always find them together. Because the motivation for godly living is the revelation that he's coming, the knowledge that he's coming. And I don't want him to come and find my house a pig pen. Just as we didn't want John Talley to walk in and see the way it was, we wanted him to come in and say, Can I buy this place? Is it for sale? Uh, and look you do the same thing when you know people are coming that you know that uh, are not just some people can come in and you don't do a thing you just leave the mess just like it is but there are other people if they were coming you'd clean up I- I'm getting some stairs from some of you <laughs> and uh, you'd cut the grass and you'd edge it and you'd trim the bushes and and you'd uh, wash the dishes and put them all up and clean off the table and vacuum. You know we have a vacuum cleaner that's over forty years old. And they say they only last on an average eight years, but if you only lose it, use it once a year, it can last. A, it can last forever. It's a filter queen. That, that thing is great. But we're to be patient. Don't panic and, and abandon what God otherwise wants you to be or do. Be patient. Trust Him. Trust Him. If there's any book in the Bible that puts an emphasis on patience, I think it's the book of Hebrews. Because the writer to the Hebrews is writing to a group of of Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And they're beginning to think that the best way to deal with this is to not not to abandon our faith in Christ but at the same time let's go back to the temple and take part in some of the services and some of the sacrifices because then they'll think well y'all are just one of us everything's okay and the writer said that's wrong that's wrong you need patient endurance don't let your faith waver to the point where you would no longer be a revelation to men of the fact that God dwells in you. One of my favorite uh, characters, stories, is a man that lives right here in the Pinson area. Uh, Some of you know him, Ray Sport. And he went to Vietnam. While he was there, he met a beautiful little Vietnamese woman, fell in love with her, and they had some kind of a, a marriage. And he was living right off the edge of the base, and then all of a sudden, things began to get hot and heavy and, and a decision was made that we're pulling out. And he went to the officials and said, I have a wife and a, and a little boy, a son. They said, they can't come. You. And they had a helicopter on top the house. You see pictures of it. And he was told to get in that helicopter. And he told his wife and his son, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. He got back to the States, sold everything he owned, found a way to get back to Laos or Thailand or somehow, worked his way back into Vietnam and found her. She, was, she had been rejected by, by the Vietnamese. She was considered a, 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 you know, a hybrid, and racism was a part of the... And she was living in squalor in a little a tent, uh, on the edge of town and malnourished and he found her and, and she lit up as she hugged him and she said I knew you were coming back and that's what kept her going that's what kept her going it's what kept her from giving in to things that otherwise would, would not have been good things and uh, one final passage for this Second Peter 3 the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, and there'll be a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, since all these things are to be destroyed this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? There they are. The reality that he's coming back, and when he comes back in that context... He's bringing judgment to the unbelieving world. And it it, it will just be incredible. And if you believe that's really going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the um, the, the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That word looking is there again. And casual, the causal, uh, you interpret it uh, causally. Uh, because you, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct because you are looking for? Or what kind of people in holy conduct should you be while you are looking for? But each writer in the epistles trying to encourage godly living, they attach it to the imminent return of our Savior. When Paul wrote his concluding letter to Timothy, in chapter 4, he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith, in the future that's laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only that, he says, not only am I going to receive that reward, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who has loved his appearing will receive that reward as well. It's not just for Paul. It's to all who love him. And by the way, that word love there is agape, which is love that is controlled by volition. Most of us live with a love that is uh, phileo. We are emotional creatures, and today if it feels good, we do it. If it doesn't feel good, we don't do it. Everything's conditioned by how I feel about it. And if you live your life that way, you're going to think you're in the Atlantic Ocean in a pirogue. It's going to be tough. People that live their life volitionally, it doesn't matter what's happening. This is what I have decided to do. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. But I want to caution you that um, to love is appearing, you know, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Um, and I, I put it up here so you can see it. To all who love is appearing does not mean that you enjoyed the Left Behind series. Now, I enjoyed that, but that doesn't mean I love the Lord's coming. Uh, It doesn't mean, secondly, our favorite study of Scripture is eschatology. I enjoy eschatology. I taught it uh, at Southeastern. Um, uh, And and students usually uh, like that. Uh, When they went to their English class, they thought the teacher was Hitler. You know, eschatology was, was a fun class. Things like that. But that doesn't mean that you love his appearing. Thirdly, your library is full of books by Walvoord and Ryrie and MacArthur. And you, especially you have Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. You know, that's not the measure of you love his appearing. I think that really you cannot, it cannot be said that you love his appearing until loving the person who has promised to return transforms your life. Let me say that again. One cannot be said to love his appearing until loving the person who has promised to return transforms your life. If you're loving Jesus enough to where he's changing your life, then you are loving his appearing. You look forward to his coming. And you don't want to be the same old person you were. You want to be able to have him come and see that you are a transformed person. Even before glorification. That will take care of the rest of it. That's what loving his appearing means. Well, my time is faded away. Um, let me skip down to an important passage that we'll close with. Well. I'll go to that one. In 1 Corinthians 16.22, as Paul concludes his letter, he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And that's the word anathema. And then he adds maranatha. Now, that word maranatha, it, it's uh, actually an Arabic word. There's some Arabic uh, mixed in with Hebrew in the Old Testament. But the word uh, maranatha, uh, people... Question just what, what it means. Um, some say that um, uh, it, it's a way of saying, "...the Lord will come." And, and that would make it um, uh, an expressive of hope. "...the Lord is coming, and that's my hope." Others would translate it, "...the Lord has come." And, and that's a reaffirmation of faith. They're so confident it's going to happen, they can speak of it as though it's already happened. And then others would make it an expletive. They would say, come. And it becomes an invitation. Welcoming, asking, inviting the Lord to come. And the early church, they had a custom when they greeted each other in the morning... They didn't do things like we do. They didn't say, well, did you have a good night's sleep? Uh, you know, how, how was your, 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 your bed? Um, uh, uh, did you enjoy your breakfast? and Things like that. They greeted each other with maranatha, maranatha, maranatha. And that was their way of saying the Lord has come, the Lord will come, come. They were living in the light of that imminent hope, it expressed a, a, a living, conscious expectation that the Lord could come at any moment. Did you know that the Lord could come right now and bring an end to this sermon? He could. I heard that Amen. But I, I am how different it would be today if I first thought in the morning would be, well, perhaps, maybe today, Lord, maybe you're coming today. Is it, do you wake up and say that? I, probably not. Or at night before you go to bed, do you say, "Lord, I hope that before I open my eyes in the morning, I'll be face to face with You." Come during the night, our Savior has come. In Matthew five, Jesus had a, a one of his ble- uh, one of his uh, beatitudes was, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness." Um. Uh, I had those and didn't show them to you. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, question. Whose lives are conformed to the character of Christ? What kind of person's life will be conformed to the character of Christ? Answer. Those who have an appetite for Him. Those who hunger for Him. Second question. What produces that appetite? The answer is the promise of his return. Motivation for transformation. Maranatha. The Lord is coming. In the knowledge of that, believing that, making that our imminent hope, That's the motive the scriptures say will help us transform our lives day by day by day as we anticipate that one day he is coming. Maranatha. Why don't you say it with me? Maranatha. Maranatha. Say it again. Maranatha. The Lord is coming. Let's pray.